Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Story of Yand Manor House by E. and H. Heron Looking through the notes of Mr. Flaxman Lowe, one sometimes catches through the steel-blue hardness of facts, the pink flush of romance, or more often the black corner of a horror unnameable. The following story may serve as an instance of the latter. Mr. Lowe not only unraveled the mystery at Yand, but at the same time justified his life work to Monsieur Terry, the well-known French critic and philosopher. At the end of a long conversation, Monsieur Terry, arguing from his own standpoint as a materialist, had said, The factor in the human economy, which you call soul, cannot be placed. I admit that, replied Lowe. Yet, when a man dies, is there not one factor unaccounted for in the change that comes upon him? Yes, for though his body still exists, it rapidly falls to pieces, which proves that has gone which held it together. The Frenchman laughed and shifted his ground. While for my part, I don't believe in ghosts. Spirit manifestations, occult phenomena, is not this the ashpen into which a certain clique shoot everything they cannot understand or for which they fail to account? Then what should you say to me, monsieur, if I told you that I have passed a good portion of my life in investigating this particular ashpen and have been lucky enough to sort a small part of its contents with tolerable success, replied Flaxman Lowe. The subject is doubtless interesting, but I should like to have some personal experience in the matter, said Terry dubiously. I am at present investigating a most singular case, said Lowe. Have you a day or two to spare? Terry thought for a minute or more. I am grateful, he replied, but forgive me, it is a convincing ghost. Come with me to Yant and see. I've been there once already, and came away for the purpose of procuring information from SS to which I have the privilege of access. For I confess that the phenomena at Yand lie altogether outside any former experience of mine. Lowe sank back into his chair, with his hands clasped behind his head, a favorite position of his, and the smoke of his long pipe curled up lazily into the golden face of an Isis, which stood behind him on a bracket. Terry, glancing across, was struck by the strange likeness between the faces of the Egyptian goddess and the scientists of the 19th century. On both rested the calm, mysterious abstraction of some unfathomable thought. As he looked, he decided, I have three days to place at your disposal. I thank you heartily, replied Lowe. To be associated with so brilliant a logician as yourself in an inquiry of this nature is more than I could have hoped for. The material with which I have to deal is so elusive. The whole subject is wrapped in such obscurity and hampered by so much prejudice that I can find few really qualified persons who care to approach these investigations seriously. I go down to Yan this evening and hope not to leave without clearing up the mystery. You will accompany me? Most certainly. Meanwhile, pray tell me something of the affair. 
Briefly, the story is as follows. Some weeks ago, I went to Yand Manor House at the request of the owner, Sir George Blackburton, to see what I could make of the events which took place there. All they complain of is the impossibility of remaining in one room, the dining room. What then is he like, this Monsieur Le Spook? asked the Frenchman, laughing. No one has ever seen him, or for that matter, heard him. Then how? You can't see him, nor hear him, nor smell him, when although, but you can feel him and taste him. Mon Dieu, but this is singular. Is he then of so bad a flavor? You shall taste for yourself, answered Flaxman Low, smiling. After a certain hour, no one can remain in the room. They are simply crowded out. But who crowds them out? asked Terry. That is just what I hope we may discover tonight or tomorrow. The last train that night dropped Mr. Flaxman Low and his companion at a little station near Yand. It was late, but a trap in waiting soon carried them to the manor house. The big bulk of the building stood up in absolute blackness before them. Blackburton was to have met us, but I suppose he has not yet arrived, said Low. Hello, the door is open, he added as he stepped into the hall. Beyond the dividing curtain, they now perceived a light. Passing behind this curtain, they found themselves at the end of the long hall, the wide staircase opening up in front of them. But who is this? exclaimed Terry. Swaying and stumbling at every step, there tottered slowly down the stairs the figure of a man. He looked as if he had been drinking. His face was livid and his eyes sunk into his head. Thank heaven you've come. I heard you outside, he said in a weak voice. It's Sir George Blackburton, said Low, as the man lurched forward and pitched into his arms. They laid him down the rugs and tried to restore consciousness. He has the air of being drunk, but it is not so, remarked Terry. Monsieur has had a bad shock of the nerves. See the pulses drumming in his throat? In a few minutes, Blackburton opened his eyes and staggered to his feet. Come, I could not remain there alone. Come quickly. They went rapidly across the hall, Blackburton leading the way down a wide passage to a double-leaved door which, after a perceptible pause, he threw open. They all entered together. On the great table in the center stood an extinguished lamp, some scattered food, and a big lighted candle. But the eyes of all three men passed at once to a dark recess besides the heavy carved chimney piece, where a rigid shape sat perched on the back of a huge oak chair. Flaxman Lowe snatched up the candle and crossed the room towards it. On top of the chair, with his feet upon the arms, sat a powerfully built young man, huddled up, his mouth was open and his eyes twisted upwards. Nothing further could be seen from below but the ghastly pallor of cheek and throat. Who is this? cried Lo. Then he laid his hand gently on the man's knee. At the touch, the figure collapsed in a heap upon the floor. The gaping, set, terrified face turned up to theirs. He's dead, said Lo, after a hasty examination. I should say he's been dead some hours. Oh, Lord. Poor Batty groaned Sir George was entirely unnerved. I'm glad you've come. Who is he? said Terry. And what was he doing here? He's a gamekeeper of mine. He was always anxious to try conclusions with a ghost. And last night he begged me to lock him in here with food for 24 hours. I refused at first, but then I thought if anything happened while he was in here alone, it would interest you. Who could imagine it would end like this? When did you find him? asked Lowe. I only got here from my mother's half an hour ago. I turned on the light in the hall and came in here with a candle. As I entered the room, the candle went out and, and I think I must be going mad. 
Tell us everything you saw, urged Lo. You will think I am beside myself. But as the light went out and I sank almost paralyzed into an armchair, I saw two barred eyes looking at me. Barred eyes? What do you mean? Eyes that looked at me through thin vertical bars, like the bars of a cage. What's that? With a smothered yell, Sir George sprang back. He had approached the dead man and declared something had brushed his face. You were standing on the spot, under the overmantel. I will remain here. Meantime, my dear Terry, I feel sure you will help Sir George to carry this poor fellow to some more suitable place, said Flaxman Lowe. When the dead body of the young gamekeeper had been carried out, Lowe passed slowly round and about the room. At length he stood under the old carved overmantel, which reached to the ceiling and projected bodily forward in quaint heads of satyrs and animals. One of these, on the side nearest the recess, represented a griffin with a fanged mouth. Sir George had been standing directly below this at the moment when he felt the touch on his face. Now alone in the dim wide room, Flaxman Lowe stood on the same spot and waited. The candle threw its dull yellow rays in the shadows, which seemed to gather closer and wait also. Presently, a distant door banged, and Lowe, leaning forward to listen distinctly, felt something on the back of his neck. He swung round. There was nothing. He searched carefully on all sides, then put his hand up to the griffin's head. Again came the same soft touch, this time upon his hand, as if something had floated past on the air. This was definite. The griffin's head located it. Taking the candle to examine more closely, Lowe found four long black hairs depending from the jagged fangs. He was detaching them when Terry appeared. We must get Sir George away as soon as possible, he said. Yes, we must take him away, I fear, agreed Lowe. Our investigation must be put off till tomorrow. On the following day, they returned to Yand. It was a large country house, pretty and old-fashioned, with lattice windows and deep gables that looked out between tall shrubs and across lawns set with bow pots, where peacocks sunned themselves on the velvet turf. The church spire peered over the trees on one side, and an old wall covered with ivy and creeping plants and pierced at intervals with arches alone separated the gardens from the churchyard. The haunted room lay at the back of the house. It was square and handsome and furnished in the style of the last century. The oak overmantel reached to the ceiling and a wide window, which almost filled one side of the room, gave a view of the west door of the church. Lowe stood for a moment at the open window, looking out at the level sunlight which flooded the lawns and parterres. See that door sunk in the church wall to the left, said Sir George's voice at his elbow. That is the door of the family vault. Cheerful outlook, isn't it? I should like to walk across there presently, remarked Lowe. What? Into the vault? asked Sir George with a harsh laugh. I'll take you if you like. Anything else I can show you or tell you? Yes, last night I found this hanging from the griffin's head, said Lowe, producing the thin wisp of black hair. It must have touched your cheek as you stood below. Do you know to whom it can belong? It's a woman's hair. No, the only woman who has been in this room, to my knowledge, for months is an old servant with gray hair who cleans it, returned Black Burton. I'm sure it was not here when I locked Batty in. It is human hair. Exceedingly coarse and long, uncut, said Lowe. But it is not necessarily a woman's. It is not mine at any rate, 
for I'm sandy and poor Batty was fair. Good night. I'll come round for you in the morning. Presently, when the night closed in, Terry and Lowe settled down in the haunted room to await developments. They smoked and talked deep into the night. A big lamp burned brightly on the table, and the surroundings looked homely and desirable. Terry made a remark to the effect, adding that perhaps the ghost might see fit to omit his usual visit. Experience goes to prove that ghosts have a cunning habit of choosing persons either incredulous or excitable to experiment upon, he added. To Monsieur Terry's surprise, Flaxman Lowe agreed with him. They certainly choose suitable persons, he said. That is, not credulous persons, but those whose senses are sufficiently keen to detect the presence of a ghost. In my own investigations, I try to eliminate what you would call the supernatural element. I deal with these mysterious affairs as far as possible on material lines. Then, what do you say of Batty's death? He died of fright, simply? I hardly think so. The man of his death agrees in a peculiar manner with what we know of the terrible history of this room. He died of fright and pressure combined. Did you hear the doctor's remark? It was significant. He said, The indications are precisely those I have observed in persons who have been crushed and killed in a crowd. That is sufficiently curious, I allow. I see that it is already past two o'clock. I am thirsty. I will have a little seltzer. Terry rose from his chair and going to the sideboard drew a tumblerful from the siphon. Bah, what an abominable taste. What? The seltzer? Not at all, returned the Frenchman irritably. I have not touched it yet. Some horrible fly has flown into my mouth, I suppose. Disgusting. What is it like? asked Flaxman Low, who was at the moment wiping his own mouth with his handkerchief. Like, as if some repulsive fungus had burst in the mouth. Exactly. I perceive it also. I hope you are about to be convinced. What? exclaimed Terry, turning his big figure round and staring at Low. You don't mean. As he spoke, the lamp suddenly went out. Why then? Have you put the lamp out at such a moment? cried Terry. I have not put it out. Light the candle beside you on the table. Low heard the Frenchman's grunt of satisfaction as he found the candle. Then the scratch of a match. It sputtered and went out. Another match and another behaved in the same manner, while Terry swore freely under his breath. Let me have your matches, Monsieur Flaxman. Mine are no doubt damp, he said at last. Low rose to feel his way across the room. The darkness was dense. It is the darkness of Egypt. It may be felt. Where then are you, my dear friend, he heard Terry saying, but the voice seemed a long way off. I am coming, he answered, but it's so hard to get along. After Lo had spoken the words, their meaning struck him. He paused and tried to realize in what part of the room he was. The silence was profound, and the growing sense of oppression seemed like a nightmare. Terry's voice sounded again faint and receding. I am suffocating, Monsieur Flaxman. Where are you? I am near the door. A strangling bellow of pain and fear followed. That scarcely reached low through the thickening atmosphere. Terry, what is the matter with you? He shouted. Open the door. But there was no answer. What had become of Terry in that hideous, clogging gloom? Was he also dead, crushed in some ghastly fashion against the wall? What was this? The air had become palpable to the touch, heavy, repulsive, with a sensation of cold, humid flesh. Lowe pushed out his hands with a mad longing to touch a table, a chair, 
anything but this clammy, swelling softness that thrust itself upon him from every side, baffling him and filling his gasp. He knew now that he was absolutely alone, struggling against what? His feet were slipping in his wild efforts to feel the floor. The dank flush was creeping upon his neck, his cheek. His breath came short and laboring as a pressure swung him gently to and fro, helpless, nauseated. The clammy flesh crowded upon him like the bulk of some fat, horrible creature. Then came a stinging pain on the cheek. Low clutched at something. There was a crash and a rush of air. The next sensation of which Mr. Flaxman Low was conscious was one of deathly sickness. He was lying on wet grass, the wind blowing over him, and all the clean, wholesome smells of the open air in his nostrils. He sat up and looked about him. Dawn was breaking windily in the east. By its light, he saw that he was on the lawn of Yand Manor House. The lattice window of the haunted room above him was open. He tried to remember what had happened. He took stock of himself, in fact, and slowly felt that he still held something clutched in his right hand. Something dark-colored, slender and twisted. It might have been a long shred of bark or the caskin of an adder. It was impossible to see in the dim light. After an interval, the recollection of Terry reoccurred to him. Scrambling to his feet, he raised himself to the windowsill and looked in. Contrary to his expectation, there was no upsetting of furniture. Everything remained in position as when the lamp went out. His own chair and the one Terry had occupied were just as when they had risen from them. But there was no sign of Terry. Lowe jumped in by the window. There was a tumbler full of seltzer and a litter of matches about it. He took up Terry's box of matches and struck a light. It flared and he lit the candle with ease. In fact, everything about the room was perfectly normal. All the horrible conditions prevailing but a couple of hours ago had disappeared. But where was Terry? Carrying the lighted candle, he passed out of the door and searched in the adjoining room. In one of them, to his relief, he found the Frenchman sleeping profoundly in an armchair. Lowe touched his arm. Terry leapt to his feet, fending off an imaginary blow with his arm. Then he turned his scared face on Lowe. What? You, Monsieur Flaxman! How have you escaped? I should rather ask you how you escaped, said Lowe, smiling at the havoc the night's experiences had worked on his friend's looks and spirits. I was crowded out of the room, against the door. That infernal thing... What was it? With its damp, swelling flesh, enclosed me. A shudder of disgust stopped him. I was a fly in an aspic. I could not move. I sank into the stifling pulp. The air grew thick. I called to you, but your answers became inaudible. Then I was suddenly thrust against the door by a huge hand. It felt like one, at least. I had a struggle for my life. I was all but crushed. And then, I do not know how I found myself outside the door. I shouted to you in vain. Therefore, as I could not help you, I came here and... I will confess it, my dear friend. I locked and bolted the door. After some time, I went again into the hall and listened. But as I heard nothing, I resolved to wait until daylight and the return of Sir George. That's all right, said Lowe. It was an experience worth having. But no, not for me. I do not envy you your researches into the mysteries of this abominable description. And I'll comprehend perfectly that Sir George has lost his nerve if he has had to do with his horror. Besides, it is entirely impossible to explain these things. At this moment, they heard Sir George's arrival and went out to meet him. I could not sleep all night for thinking of you, exclaimed Blackburton on seeing them, 
and I came along as soon as it was light. Something has happened. But certainly something has happened, cried Monsieur Terry, shaking his head solemnly. Something of the most bizarre, of the most horrible. Monsieur Flaxman, you shall tell Sir George this story. You have been in that accursed room all night, and remain alive to tell the tale. As low came to the conclusion of the story, Sir George suddenly claimed. You have met with some injury to your face, Mr. Lowe. Lowe turned to the mirror. In the now strong light, three parallel wheels from eye to mouth could be seen. I remember a stinging pain like a lash on my cheek. What would you say these marks were caused by, Terry? asked Lowe. Terry looked at them and shook his head. No one in their senses would venture to offer any explanation of the occurrences of last night, he replied. Something of this sort, do you think? asked Lowe again putting down the object he held in his hand on the table. Terry took it up and described it aloud. A long and thin object of a brown and yellow color and twisted like a saber-bladed corkscrew. Then he started slightly and glanced at Lowe. It's a human nail, I imagine, suggested Lowe. But no human being has talons of this kind, except perhaps a Chinaman of high rank. There are no Chinamen about here, nor have been, to my knowledge, said Blackburn shortly. I'm very much afraid that, in spite of all you have so bravely faced, we are no nearer to any rational explanation. On the contrary, I fancy I begin to see my way. I believe, after all, that I may be able to convert you, Terry, said Flaxman low. Convert me? To a belief in the definite aim of my work. But you shall judge for yourself. What do you make of it so far? I claim that you know as much of the matter as I do. My dear good friend, I make nothing of it, returned Terry, shrugging his shoulders and spreading out his hands. Here we have a tissue of unprecedented incidents that can be explained on no theory whatever. But this is definite, said Flaxman Lowe, held up the blackened nail. And how do you propose to connect that nail with the black hairs, with the eyes that look through the bars of a cage, the fate of body with its symptoms of death by pressure and suffocation, our experience of swelling flesh, that something which filled and filled the room to the exclusion of all else? How are you going to account for these things by any kind of connected hypothesis? asked Terry with a shade of irony. I mean to try, replied Lowe. At lunchtime, Terry inquired, how the theory was getting on. It progresses, answered Lowe. By the way, Sir George, who lived in this house for some time prior to, say, 1840, he was a man. It may have been a woman, but from the nature of his studies, I am inclined to think it was a man who was deeply read in ancient necromancy, Eastern magic, mesmerism, and subjects of a kindred nature. And was he not buried in the vault you pointed out? Do you know anything more about him? asked Sir George in surprise. He was, I imagine, went on Flaxman Lowe reflectively, hirsute and swarthy, probably a recluse and suffered from a morbid and extravagant fear of death. How do you know all this? I only ask about it. Am I right? You have described my cousin, Sir Gilbert Blackburton, in every particular. I can show you his portrait in another room. As they stood looking at the painting of Sir Gilbert Blackburton, with his long, melancholy, olive face and thick black beard, Sir George went on. My grandfather succeeded him at Yand. I have often heard my father speak of Sir Gilbert 
and his strange studies and extraordinary fear of death. Oddly enough, in the end, he died rather suddenly while he was still hale and strong. He predicted his own approaching death and had a doctor in attendance for a week or two before he died. He was placed in a coffin he had had made on some plan of his own and buried in the vault. His death occurred in 1842 or 1843. If you care to see them, I can show you some of his papers, which may interest you. Mr. Flaxman Lowe spent the afternoon over the papers. When evening came, he rose from his work with a sigh of content, stretched himself, and joined Terry and Sir George in the garden. They dined at Lady Blackburton's, and it was late before Sir George found himself alone with Mr. Flaxman Lowe and his friend. Have you formed any opinion about the thing which haunts the manor house? He asked anxiously. Terry elaborated a cigarette, crossed his legs, and added, If you have in truth come to any definite conclusion, pray, let us hear it, my dear Monsieur Flaxman. I have reached a very definite and satisfactory conclusion, replied Lowe. The manor house is haunted by Sir Gilbert Blackburton, who died, or rather, who seemed to die, on the 15th of August, 1842. Nonsense. The nail fifteen inches long at least? How do you connect it with Sir Gilbert? asked Blackburton testily. I'm convinced that it belonged to Sir Gilbert, Lowe answered. With the long black hair like a woman's. The solution in the case of Sir Gilbert was not complete, not constipated, so to speak, as I hope to show you later. Even in the case of dead persons, the hair and nails have been known to grow. By rough calculation, as to the growth of nails in such cases, I was enabled to indicate approximately the date of Sir Gilbert's death. The hair, too, grew on his head. But the barred eyes! I saw them myself, exclaimed the young man. The eyelashes grow also. You follow me? You have, I presume, some theory in connection with this, observed Terry. It must be a very curious one. Sir Gilbert, in his fear of death, appears to have mastered and elaborated a strange and ancient formula by which the grosser factors of the body being eliminated, the more ethereal portions continue to retain the spirit and the bodies thus preserved from absolute disintegration. In this manner, true death may be indefinitely deferred. Secure from the ordinary chances and changes of existence, the spiritualized body could retain a modified life practically forever. This is a most extraordinary idea, my dear fellow, remarked Terry. But why should Sir Gilbert haunt the manor house and one special room? The tendency of spirits to return the old haunts of bodily life is almost universal. We cannot yet explain the reason of this attraction of environment. But the expansion, the crowding substance which we ourselves felt, you cannot meet that difficulty, said Terry persistently. Not as fully as I could wish, perhaps, but the power of expanding and contracting to a degree far beyond our comprehension is a well-known attribute of spiritualized matter. Wait one little moment, my dear Monsieur Flaxman, broke in Terry's voice after an interval. This is very clever and ingenious indeed. As a theory, I give it my sincere admiration. But proof, proof is what we now demand. Flaxman Lowe looked steadily at the two incredulous faces. This, he said slowly, is the hair... Sir Gilbert Blackburton, and this nail is from the little finger of his left hand. You can prove my assertion by opening the coffin. Sir George, who was pacing up and down the room impatiently, drew up. I don't like it at all, Mr. Lowe. 
I tell you frankly, I don't like it at all. I see no object in violating the coffin. I am not concerned to verify this unpleasant theory of yours. I have only one desire. I want to get rid of this haunting presence, whatever it is. If I am right, replied Lowe, the opening of the coffin and exposure of the remains to strong sunshine for a short time will free you forever from this presence. In the early morning, when the summer sun struck warmly on the lawns of Yand, the three men carried the coffin from the vault to a quiet spot among the shrubs where, secure from observation, they raised the lid. Within the coffin lay the resemblance of Gilbert Blackburton, maned to the ears with long and coarse black hair. Matted eyelashes swept the fallen cheeks, and beside the body stretched the bony hands, each with its dependent sheaf of switch-like nails. Low bent over and raised the left hand gingerly. The little finger was without a nail. Two hours later they came back and looked again. The sun had in the meantime done its work. Nothing remained but a fleshless skeleton and a few half-rotten shreds of clothing. The ghost of Yan Manor House has never since been heard of. When Terry bade Flaxman logo by, he said, In time, my dear Monsieur Flaxman, you will add another to our sciences. You established your facts too well for my peace of mind. The Brown Hand by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Everyone knows that Sir Dominic Holden, the famous Indian surgeon, made me his heir, and that his death changed me in an hour from a hard-working and impecunious medical man to a well-to-do landed proprietor. Many know also that there were at least five people between the inheritance and me and that Sir Dominic's selection appeared to be altogether arbitrary and whimsical. I can assure them, however, that they are quite mistaken, and that, although I only knew Sir Dominic in the closing years of his life, there were none the less very real reasons why he should show his goodwill toward me. As a matter of fact, though I say it myself, no man ever did more for another than I did for my Indian uncle. I cannot expect the story to be believed. But it is so singular that I should feel that it was the breach of duty if I did not put it upon record. So here it is, and your belief or incredulity is your own affair. Sir Dominic Holden, and I don't know what besides, was the most distinguished Indian surgeon of his day. In the army originally, he afterwards settled down into civil practice in Bombay and visited as a consultant every part of India. His name is best remembered in connection with the Oriental Hospital, which he founded and supported. The time came, however, when his iron constitution began to show signs of the long strain to which he had subjected it, and his brother practitioners, who were not perhaps entirely disinterested upon the point, were unanimous in recommending him to return to England. He held on so long as he could, but at last he developed nervous symptoms of a very pronounced character and so came back a broken man to his native country of Wiltshire. He brought a considerable estate with an ancient manor house upon the edge of Salisbury Plain, and devoted his old age to the study of comparative pathology, which had been his learned hobby all his life, and in which he was a foremost authority. We of the family were, as may be imagined, much excited by the news of the return of this rich and childless uncle to England. On his part, Although by no means exuberant in his hospitality, he showed some sense of his duty to his relations, and each of us in turn had an invitation to visit him. From the accounts of my cousins, it appeared 
to be a melancholy business, and it was with mixed feelings that I at last received my own summons to appear at Roddenhurst. My wife was so carefully excluded in the invitation that my first impulse was to refuse it, but the interests of the children had to be considered, and so, with her consent, I set out one October afternoon upon my visit to Wiltshire, with little thought of what that visit was to entail. My uncle's estate was situated where the arable land of the plains begins to swell upward into the rounded chalk hills, which are characteristic of the county. As I drove from Dinton Station in the waning light of that autumn day, I was impressed by the weird nature of the scenery. The few scattered cottages of the peasants were so dwarfed by the huge evidence of prehistoric life that the present appeared to be a dream and the past to be the obtrusive and masterful reality. The road wound through the valleys, formed by a succession of grassy hills, and the summit of each was cut and carved into the most elaborate fortifications, some circular and some square, but all in a scale which has defied the winds and the rains of many centuries. Some call them Roman and some British, but their true origin and the reason for this particular tract of country, being so interlaced with entrenchments, have never been finally made clear. Here and there on the long, smooth, olive-colored slopes, there rose small, rounded barrows or tumuli. Beneath them lie the cremated ashes of the race, which cut so deeply into the hills, but their graves tell us nothing, save that a jar full of dust represents the man who once labored under the sun. It was through this weird country that I approached my uncle's residence of Roddenhurst, and the house was, as I found, in due keeping with its surroundings. Two broken and weather-stained wheelers, each surmounted by a mutilated heraldic emblem, flanked the entrance to a neglected drive. A cold wind whistled through the elms which lined it, and the air was full of the drifting leaves. At the far end, under the gloomy arc of trees, a single yellow lamp burned steadily. In the dim half-light of the coming night, I saw a long, low building stretching out, two irregular wings with deep eaves, a sloping gambrel roof and walls, which were crisscrossed with timber balks in the fashion of the Tudors. The cheery light of a fire flickered in the broad lattice window to the left of the low porch door, and this, as it proved, marked the study of my uncle, for it was thither that I was led by his butler in order to make my host acquaintance. He was cowering over his fire, for the moist chill of an English autumn had set him shivering. His lamp was unlit, and I only saw the red glow of the embers beating upon a huge craggy face with a red Indian nose and cheek and deep furrows and seams from eye to chin, the sinister marks of a hidden volcanic fires. He sprang up at my entrance with something of an old-world courtesy and welcomed me warmly to Roddenhurst. At the same time, I was conscious as a lamp was carried in that it was a very critical pair of light blue eyes which looked out at me from under shaggy eyebrows like scouts beneath a bush, and that this outlandish uncle of mine was carefully reading off my character with all the ease of a practiced observer and an experienced man of the world. For my part, I looked at him, and looked again, for I had never seen a man whose appearance was more fitted to hold one's attention. His figure was the framework of a giant, but he had fallen away until his coat dangled straight down in a shocking fashion from a pair of broad and bony shoulders. All his limbs were huge and yet emaciated, and I could not take my gaze from his knobby wrists and long, gnarled hands. But his eyes, those peering light blue eyes, they were the most arrestive of any of his peculiarities. It was not their color alone, nor was it the ambush of hair in which they lurked, 
but it was the expression which I read in them. For the appearance and bearing of the man were masterful, and one expected a certain corresponding arrogance in his eyes. But instead of that, I read the look which tells of a spirit cowed and crushed, the furtive, expectant look of the dog whose master has taken the whip from the rack. I formed my own medical diagnosis upon one glance at those critical and yet appealing eyes. I believed that he was stricken with some mortal ailment, that he knew himself to be exposed to sudden death, and that he lived in terror of it. Such was my judgment, a false one, as the event showed, but I mention it that it may help yet to realize the look which I read in his eyes. My uncle's welcome was, as I have said, a courteous one. In an hour or so, I found myself seated between him and his wife at a comfortable dinner, with curious pungent delicacies upon the table, and a stealthy, quick-eyed oriental waiter behind his chair. The old couple had come round to that tragic imitation of the dawn of life, when husband and wife, having lost or scattered all those who were their intimates, find themselves face to face and alone once more, their work done, and the end nearing fast. Those who have reached this stage in sweetness and love, who can change their winter into a gentle Indian summer, have come as victors through the ordeal of life. Lady Holden was a small, alert woman with a kindly eye, and her expression as she glanced at him was a certificate of character to her husband. And yet, though I read a mutual love in their glances, I read also mutual horror and recognized in her face some reflection of that stealthy fear which I had detected in his. Their talk was sometimes merry and sometimes sad, but there was a forced note in their merriment and a naturalness in their sadness, which told me that a heavy heart beat upon either side of me. We were sitting over our first glass of wine, and the servants had left the room when the conversation took a turn which produced a remarkable effect upon my host and hostess. I cannot recall what it was which started the topic of the supernatural, but it ended in my showing them that the abnormal and psychical experiences was a subject to which I had, like many neurologists, devoted a great deal of attention. I concluded by narrating my experiences when, as a member of the Psychical Research Society, I formed one of a committee of three who spent the night in a haunted house. Our adventures were neither exciting nor convincing, but, such as it was, the story appeared to interest my auditors in a remarkable degree. They listened with an eager silence and I caught a look of intelligence between them, which I could not understand. Lady Holden immediately afterwards rose and left the room. Sir Dominic pushed a cigar box over to me, and we smoked for some little time in silence. That huge bony hand of his was twitching as he raised it with his cheroot to his lips, and I felt that the man's nerves were vibrating like fiddle strings. My instincts told me that he was on the verge of some intimate confidence, and I feared to speak lest I should interrupt it. At last he turned towards me with a spasmodic gesture like a man who throws his last scruple to the winds. From the little that I have seen of you, it appears to me, Dr. Hardacre, said he, that you are the very man I have wanted to meet. I'm delighted to hear it, sir. Your head seems to be cool and steady. You will acquit me of any desire to flatter you, for the circumstances are too serious to permit of insincerities. You have some special knowledge upon these subjects, and you evidently view them from that philosophical standpoint which robs them of all vulgar terror. I presume that the sight of an apparition would not seriously decompose you? I think not, sir. Would even interest you, perhaps? Most intensely. As a psychical observer, 
you would probably investigate it in an impersonal fashion as an astronomer investigates a wandering comet. Precisely. He gave a heavy sigh. Believe me, Dr. Hardacre. There was a time when I could have spoken as you do now. My nerve was a byword in India. Even the mutiny never shook it for an instant. And yet you see what I am reduced to. The most timorous man, perhaps in all this county of Wiltshire. Do not speak too bravely upon this subject, or you may find yourself subjected to a long-drawn test as I am. A test which can only end in the madhouse or the grave. I waited patiently until he should see fit to go further in his confidence. His preamble had, I need not say, filled me with interest and expectation. For some years, Dr. Hardacre, he continued, my life and that of my wife have been made miserable by a cause which is so grotesque that it borders upon the ludicrous. And yet familiarity has never made it more easy to bear. On the contrary, as time passes, my nerves become more worn and shattered by the constant attrition. If you have no physical fears, Dr. Hardacre, I should very much value your opinion upon this phenomenon which troubles us so. For what it is worth, my opinion is entirely at your service. May I ask the nature of the phenomena? I think that your experiences will have a higher evidential value if you are not told in advance what you may expect to encounter. You are yourself aware of the quibbles of unconscious celebration and subjective impressions with which a scientific skeptic may throw a doubt upon your statement. It would be as well to guard against them in advance. What shall I do then? I will tell you. Would you mind following me this way? He led me out of the dining room and down a long passage until we came to a terminal door. Inside there was a large bare room, fitted as a laboratory with numerous scientific instruments and bottles. A shelf ran along one side upon which stood a long line of glass jars containing pathological and anatomical specimens. You see that I still dabble in some of my old studies, said Sir Dominic. These jars are the remains of what was once a most excellent collection, but unfortunately I lost a greater part of them when my house was burned down in Bombay in 92. It was a most unfortunate affair for me, in more ways than one. I had examples of many rare conditions, and my splenic collection was probably unique. These are the survivors. I glanced over them and saw that they really were of a very great value and rarity from a pathological point of view. Bloated organs, gaping cysts, distorted bones, odious parasites, a singular exhibition of the products of India. There is, as you see, a small saute here, he said, my host. It was far from our intention to offer guests so meager an accommodation, but since affairs have taken this turn, it would be a great kindness upon your part if you would consent to spend the night in this apartment. I beg that you will not hesitate to let me know if the idea should be at all repugnant to you. On the contrary, I said, it is most acceptable. My own room is the second on the left, so that if you should feel that you are in need of company, a call would always bring me to your side. I trust that I shall not be compelled to disturb you. It is unlikely that I shall be asleep. I do not sleep much. Do not hesitate to summon me. And so with this agreement, we joined Lady Holden in the drawing room and talked of lighter things. It was no affectation upon my part to say that the prospect of my night's adventure was an agreeable one. I had no pretense to greater physical courage than my neighbors, 
but familiarity with a subject robs it of its vague, undefined terrors, which are the most appalling to the imaginative mind. The human brain is capable of only one strong emotion at a time, and if it be filled with curiosity or scientific enthusiasm, there is no room for fear. It is true that I had my uncle's assurance that he had himself originally taken this point of view, but I reflected that the breakdown of his nervous system might be due to his 40 years in India, as much as to any psychical experience which had befallen him. I at least was sound in nerve and brain, and it was with something of the pleasurable thrill of anticipation with which the sportsman takes his position besides the haunt of his game that I shut the laboratory door behind me and partially undressing lay down upon the rug-covered settee. It was not an ideal atmosphere for a bedroom. The air was heavy with many chemical odors, that of my methylated spirit predominating, nor were the decorations of my chamber very sedative. The odious line of glass jars with their relics of disease and suffering stretched in front of my very eyes. There was no blind to the windows, and a three-quarter moon streamed its white light into the room, tracing a silver square with filigree lattices upon the opposite wall. When I had extinguished my candle, this one bright patch in the midst of the general gloom had certainly an eerie and discomposing aspect. A rigid and absolute silence reigned throughout the old house, so that the low swish of the branches in the garden came softly and smoothly to my ears. It may have been the hypnotic lullaby of this gentle susurrus, or it may have been the result of my tiring day, but after many dozings and many efforts to regain my clearness of perception, I fell at last on a deep and dreamless sleep. I was awakened by some sound in the room, and I instantly raised myself upon my elbow on the couch. Some hours had passed, for the square patch upon the wall had slid downward and sideways until it lay obliquely at the end of my bed. The rest of the room was in deep shadow. At first I could see nothing. Presently, as my eyes became accustomed to the faint light, I was aware, with a thrill which all my scientific absorption could not entirely prevent, that something was moving slowly along the line of the wall. A gentle shuffling sound, as of soft slippers, came to my ears, and I dimly discerned a human figure walking stealthily from the direction of the door. As it emerged into the patch of moonlight, I saw very clearly that it was and how it was employed. It was a man, short and squat, dressed in some sort of dark gray gown, which hung straight from his shoulders to his feet. The moon shone upon the side of his face, and I saw that it was chocolate brown in color, with a ball of black hair, like a woman's at the back of his head. He walked slowly, and his eyes were cast upwards towards the lines of bottles which contained those gruesome remnants of humanity. He seemed to examine each jar with attention, and then to pass on to the next. When he had come to the end of the line, he immediately came opposite to my bed. He stopped, faced me, threw up his hands with a gesture of despair, and vanished from my sight. I've said that he threw up his hands, but I should have said his arms, for as he assumed that attitude of despair, I observed a singular peculiarity about his appearance. He had only one hand. As the sleeves drooped down from the upflung arms, I saw the left plainly, but the right ended in a knobby and unsightly stump. And every other way's appearance was so natural, and I had both seen and heard him so clearly, that I could easily have believed that he was an Indian servant of Sir Dominic's, who had come into my room in search of something. It was only a sudden disappearance which suggested anything more sinister to me. As it was, I sprang from my couch, 
lit a candle and examined the whole room carefully. There were no signs of my visitor, and I was forced to conclude that there had really been something outside the normal laws of nature in his appearance. I lay awake for the remainder of the night, but nothing else occurred to disturb me. I'm an early riser, but my uncle was an even earlier one, for I found him pacing up and down the lawn on the side of the house. He ran towards me in his eagerness when he saw me come out from the door. Well, well, he cried. Did you see him? An Indian with one hand. Precisely. Yes, I saw him. And I told him all that had occurred. When I had finished, he led the way into his study. We have a little time before breakfast, said he. It will suffice to give you an explanation of this extraordinary affair, so far as I can explain that which is essentially inexplicable. In the first place, when I tell you that for four years, I've never passed one single night, either in Bombay, aboard ship, or here in England without my sleep being broken by this fellow, you will understand why it is that I am a wreck of my former self. His program is always the same. He appears by my bedside, shakes me roughly by the shoulder, passes from my room into the laboratory, walks slowly along the lines of my bottles, and then vanishes. For more than a thousand times he has gone through the same routine. What does he want? He wants his hand. His hand? Yes. It came about in this way. I was summoned to Peshawar for a consultation some ten years ago, and while there I was asked to look at the hand of a native who was passing through with an Afghan caravan. The fellow came from some mountain tribe, living away at the back of beyond somewhere on the other side of Kafiristan. He talked a bastard Pushtu, and it was all I could do to understand him. He was suffering from a soft sarcomatous swelling of one of the metacarpal joints, and I made him realize that it was only by losing his hand that he could hope to save his life. After much persuasion, he consented to the operation, and he asked me, when it was over, what fee I demanded. The poor fellow was almost a beggar, so that the idea of a fee was absurd, but I answered in jest that my fee should be his hand, and that I proposed to add it to my pathological collection. To my surprise, he demurred very much to the suggestion, and he explained that according to his religion it was an all-important matter that the body should be reunited after death and so make a perfect dwelling for the spirit. The police is, of course, an old one, and the mummies of the Egyptians arose from an analogous superstition. I answered him that his hand was already off and asked him how he intended to preserve it. He replied that he would pickle it in salt and carry it about with him. I suggested that it might be safer in my keeping than his, and that I had better means than salt for preserving it. On realizing that I really intended to carefully keep it, his opposition vanished instantly. But remember, Saab, he said, I shall want it back when I am dead. I laughed at the remark, and so the matter ended. I returned to my practice, and he, no doubt, in the course of time, was able to continue his journey to Afghanistan. Well, as I told you last night, I had a bad fire in my house at Bombay. Half of it was burned down, and among other things, my pathological collection was largely destroyed. What you see are the poor remains of it. The hand of the hillman went with the rest, but I gave the matter no particular thought at the time. That was six years ago. Four years ago, two years after the fire, I was awakened one night by a furious tugging at my sleeve. I sat up under the impression that my favorite master was trying to arouse me, 
Instead of this, I saw my Indian patient of long ago, dressed in the long gray gown, which was the badge of his people. He was holding up his stump and looking reproachfully at me. He then went over to my bottles, which at that time I kept in my room, and he examined them carefully, after which he gave a gesture of anger and vanished. I realized that he had just died, and that he had come to claim my promise that I should keep his limb in safety for him. Well, there you have it all, Dr. Hardacre. Every night, at the same hour for four years, this performance has been repeated. It is a simple thing in itself, but it has worn me out like water dropping on stone. It has brought a violent insomnia with it, for I cannot sleep now for the expectation of his coming, as poison my old age and that of my wife, who has been the sharer in this great trouble. But there is the breakfast gong, and she will be waiting impatiently to know how it fared with you last night. We are both much indebted to you for your gallantry, for it takes something from the weight of our misfortune when we share it, even for a single night with a friend, and it reassures us to our insanity, which we are sometimes driven to question. This was the curious narrative which Dr. Dominic confided to me, a story which to many would have appeared to be a grotesque impossibility, but which after my experience of the night before and my previous knowledge of such things, I was prepared to accept as an absolute fact. I thought deeply over the matter and brought the whole range of my reading and experience to bear upon it. After breakfast, I surprised my host and hostess by announcing that I was returning to London by the next train. My dear doctor, cried Dr. Dominic in great distress, you make me feel that I have been guilty of a gross breach of hospitality in introducing this unfortunate matter upon you. I should have borne my own burden. It is, indeed, that matter which is taking me to London, I answered. But you are mistaken, I assure you, if you think that my experience of last night was an unpleasant one to me. On the contrary, I'm about to ask your permission to return in the evening and spend one more night in your laboratory. I am very eager to see this visitor once again. My uncle was exceedingly anxious to know what I was about to do, but my fears of raising false hopes prevented me from telling him. I was back in my own consulting room a little after luncheon and was confirming my memory of a passage in a recent book upon occultism, which had arrested my attention when I read it. In the case of earthbound spirits, said my authority, some dominant idea of obsessing them at the hour of death is sufficient to hold them in this material world. They are the amphibia of this life and of the next, capable of passing from one to the other as a turtle passes from land to water. The causes which may bind a soul so strongly to a life which its body has abandoned are any violent emotion, avarice, revenge, anxiety, love, and pity have all been known to have this effect. As a rule, it springs from some unfulfilled wish, and when that wish has been fulfilled, the material bond relaxes. There are many cases upon record which show the singular persistence of these visitors, and also their disappearance when their wishes have been fulfilled or in some cases, when a reasonable compromise has been effected. A reasonable compromise effected. Those are the words which I had brooded over all the morning, and which I now verified in the original. No actual atonement could be made here, but a reasonable compromise. I made my way as fast as a train could take me to the Shadwell Siemens Hospital, where my old friend Jack Hewitt was house surgeon. Without explaining the situation, I made him understand what it was that I wanted. A brown man's hand, said he in amazement. 
What in the world do you want that for? Never mind, I'll tell you some day. I know that your wards are full of Indians. I should think so, but a hand? He thought a little and then struck a bell. Travers, said he to a student dresser, what became of the hands of the Lascar, which we took off yesterday? I mean, the fellow from the East India Dock, who got caught in the steam winch. They are in the post-mortem room, sir. Just pack one of them in antiseptics and give it to Dr. Hardacre. And so I found myself back at Roddenhurst before dinner with this curious outcome of my day in town. I still said nothing to Sir Dominic, but I slept that night in the laboratory and I placed the Lascar's hand in one of the jars at the end of my couch. So interested was I in the result of my experiment that sleep was out of the question. I sat with a shaded lamp beside me and waited patiently for my visitor. This time I saw him clearly from the first. He appeared beside the door, nebulous for an instant, and then hardening into as distinct an outline as any living man. The slippers beneath his gray gown were red and heelless, which accounted for the low shuffling sound which he made as he walked. As on the previous night, he passed slowly along the line of bottles until he paused before that which contained the hand. He reached up to it, his whole figure quivering with expectation, took it down, examined it eagerly, and then with a face which was convulsed with disappointment, he hurled it down on the floor. There was a crash which resounded through the house, and when I looked up, the mutilated Indian had disappeared. A moment later, my door flew open and Sir Dominic rushed in. You are not hurt, he cried. No, but deeply disappointed. He looked in astonishment at the splinters of glass and the brown hand lying upon the floor. Good God, he cried. What is this? I told him my idea and its wretched sequel. He listened intently, but shook his head. It was well thought of, said he. But I fear that there is no such easy end to my sufferings. But one thing I now insist upon is that you shall never again, upon any pretext, occupy this room. My fears that something might have happened to you when I heard that crash have been the most acute of all the agonies which I have undergone. I will not expose myself to a repetition of it. He allowed me, however, to spend the remainder of the night where I was, and I lay there worrying over the problem and lamenting my own failure. With the first light of morning, there was the Lascar's hand still lying upon the floor to remind me of my fiasco. I lay looking at it, and as I lay suddenly an idea flew like a bullet through my head and brought me quivering with excitement out of my couch. I raised the grim relic from where it had fallen. Yes, it was indeed so. The hand was the left hand of the Lascar. By the first train, I was on my way to town and hurried at once to the Seaman's Hospital. I remembered that both hands of the Lascar had been amputated, but I was terrified lest the precious organ which I was in search of might have already been consumed in the crematory. My suspense was soon ended, and had still been preserved in the post-mortem room, and so I returned to Roddenhurst in the evening with my mission accomplished and the material for a fresh experiment. But Sir Dominic Holden would not hear of my occupying the laboratory again. To all my entreaties he turned a deaf ear. It offended his sense of hospitality, and he could no longer permit it. I left the hand, therefore, as I had done its fellow the night before and I occupied a comfortable bedroom in another portion of the house, some distance from the scene of my adventures. But in spite of that, my sleep was not destined to be uninterrupted. In the dead of night, my host burst into my room, a lamp in his hand. His huge, gaunt figure was enveloped in a loose dressing gown, and his whole appearance 
might certainly have seemed more formidable to a weak-nerved man than that of the Indian of the night before, but it was not his entrance so much as his expression which amazed me. He had turned suddenly younger, by twenty years at the least. His eyes were shining, his features radiant, and he waved one hand in triumph over his head. I sat up astounded, staring sleepily at this extraordinary visitor, but his words soon drove the sleep from my eyes. We have done it! We have succeeded, he shouted. My dear Hardacre, how can I ever in this world repay you? You don't mean to say that it is all right? Indeed I do. I was sure you would not mind being awakened to hear such blessed news. Mind? I should think not indeed. But is it really certain? I have no doubt whatever upon the point. I owe you such a debt, my dear nephew, as I have never owed a man before and never expected to. What can I possibly do for you that is commensurate? Providence must have sent you to my rescue. You have saved both my reason and my life. For another six months of this must have been either in a cell or a coffin. And my wife, it was wearing her out before my eyes. Never could I have believed that any human being could have lifted this burden off me. He seized my hand and wrung it in his bony grip. It was only an experiment a forlorn hope, but I am delighted from my heart that has succeeded. But how do you know that it is all right? Have you seen something? He seated himself at the foot of my bed. I've seen enough, said he. It satisfies me that I shall be troubled no more. What has passed is easily told. You know that at a certain hour this creature always comes to me. Tonight he arrived at the usual time and aroused me with even more violence than is his custom. I can only surmise that the disappointment of last night increased the bitterness of his anger against me. He looked angrily at me and then went on his usual round. But in a few minutes I saw him for the first time since this persecution began. Returned to my chamber. He was smiling. I saw the gleam of his white teeth through the dim light. He stood facing me at the end of my bed and three times he made the low eastern salam, which is their solemn leave-taking. And the third time that he bowed, he raised his hand over his head, and I saw his two hands outstretched in the air. So he vanished, and, as I believe, forever. So, that is the curious experience which won me the affection and the gratitude of my celebrated uncle, the famous Indian surgeon. His anticipations were realized, and never again was he disturbed by the visits of the restless hillmen in search of his lost member. Sir Dominic and Lady Holden spent a very happy old age, unclouded, so far as I know, by any trouble, and they finally died during the great influenza epidemic within a few weeks of each other. In his lifetime, he always turned to me for advice in everything which concerned that English life of which he knew so little, and I aided him also in the purchase and development of his estates. It was no great surprise to me, therefore, that I found myself eventually promoted over the heads of five exasperated cousins and changed in a single day from a hard-working country doctor into the head of an important Wiltshire family. I at least have reason to bless the memory of the man with a brown hand and the day when I was fortunate enough to relieve Rottenhurst of his unwelcome presence. <laughs>